Thank you for listening to the Divine Nobodies Podcast with Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobodies Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and understanding. Welcome to our tribe. And now your hosts, Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. Namaste, friends. How are you doing, Jen? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Can you believe this is episode 75? Can you believe you've done 75 episodes? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's hard to believe, right? I don't know. If I think yeah. back of like the last maybe 20 episodes, I, I forget. I wonder what we would sound like then. It's all a blur. We should actually go back and listen to some of our first episodes when we oh, had the we big totally round should. table, you know? Yeah. Just do like a revisiting of the episodes. Yeah. That'd be fun. Come on like a little yearbook, see how much we've grown since then. <laughs> we've grown a lot. I feel like this podcast has changed quite a bit since then. Oh yeah, absolutely. Since we started during the pandemic, I mean, we're completely different people now. We we actually, we survived. We survived. We made it. Yeah, we, we survived made it. the apocalypse. Yeah, we I came out on it. the other side much better, much more healthier, much more aware. And uh, of mm -hmm. course, with all the people that we've spoken to, a little bit more wise, right? For sure. For sure. Yeah. So check this out, Jen. I went uh, camping a couple weeks ago. Welcome, everybody, to Divine Noise Podcast, just in case I forgot that piece. Welcome, you guys, for joining us. And uh, went camping at El Capitan. I don't know if you know where El Capitan is. You did? Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize that's where you went. Are we, are we thinking of the same El Capitan, Jen? I'm not talking about Yosemite. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about Yosemite. Yeah, everybody does. Everybody does the same thing. I'm like, oh, I went to El Capitan. They're like, you did? I went to El Capitan. It's actually located near Santa Barbara. Oh, it's about okay. an hour and a half, two hours away from uh, Los Angeles. And okay. it's the El Capitan campgrounds, which is near Santa Barbara, and it's a state beach. Oh, Did you okay, know that? nice. Um, actually, I think I may have stayed there. Yeah. We, um, for my birthday, like several years ago, we rented a little greenhouse, uh -huh. and it was greenhouses on the beach, and you could camp there at these like old abandoned, abandoned uh, greenhouses. Abandoned greenhouses? Did you camp yeah. inside of the greenhouse? Um, yeah. Really? Yeah. Weren't you it's all really humid cool. and sweaty and wasn't it all crazy? No, no. They have them, um, um, like they're abandoned greenhouses. They don't have like fruits and vegetables and roses oh, and flowers and shit and... like you think that they would. Um, yeah. They're kind of like de decorated as campsites. Oh, so. I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah, definitely wasn't that. This was a really amazing campsite. I, I will say though, it's it's not the best camping that I've kind of uh, experience because I like being deep in the forest. I like that BLM land. Oh, me you know? too. Yeah. Like the, the land that goes like it, really out deep in the forest away from everything. You can get to worry about like families across the way. But this one was really unique because it was a, a campsite that overlooked the ocean. So there was like this peak, wherever it is that we were camping, you look out and you could actually see the ocean in the distance. Mm -hmm. You can actually hear the waves in the evenings. Really beautiful, really nice. You know, the interesting thing about that place is it wasn't too far out into the wilderness, but there was more life there than I've experienced in a lot of different places deeper into the like Angeles Crest Forest or uh, Los Angeles Forest or even like Sequoia, for example. So one evening we were just hanging out there and uh, we were by the campfire because that's what they do. That's what we do when we go camping. Yeah. And I hear this little rustling inside of my tent, Jen. A little inside rustling your inside tent? of my tent. I don't know what it was. And all of a sudden, and we had a dog with us. There was this little tiny chihuahua dog that was with us. Jumps out of the chair and starts running towards the tent all fast. And we're like, oh shit, what's over there? 
we heard this, I heard this rustling inside of my tent, Jen. Okay. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was a bear. I didn't know if it was a raccoon, you know? Or a squirrel or, or a bunny. Or, or a squirrel or a bunny or the chupacabra. I the chupacabra. Bigfoot. Yeah, Sasquatch, sure. mm-hmm. you know? Anyways, I go. I walk up to the tent. All of a sudden, I hear, I see this raccoon just run literally out of my tent. He wasn't just around my tent. He went inside of my tent because I left it a little bit open. Oh, did you have food in there? I had like a little bag of unopened chips inside oh, of my tent. Yeah. Right. Did and he take the chips? Mean, that, that's not uncommon. Like like animals go after that. Usually, they do it really late in the evening after you've already gone to bed. Right. This yeah. raccoon was a little different. Like he saw us, didn't care, one of the chips got inside of the the tent and ran out. And this is the thing. I saw him ran out with a bag of chips in his hand. (laughs) This motherfucker was walking on two legs with a bag of Lay's potato chips in his hand. Yes. It's so crazy. And they'll eat with their hands too, like humans. You know, a friend of mine had a raccoon as a pet. His name was Rocket and um, Rocket loved fruit. So he would take fruit out of your hand and eat it like a human. It was crazy. And they'd pick him up and, you know, hold him like a baby. And he Did was, he name him Rocket after the Guardians of the Galaxy movie? Yes. Because that was the name of the raccoon. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this, this guy was walking on two feet, right? Had absolutely mm-hmm. no shame, no fear. And he even walked a little bit, stopped mid-walk, looked to the left and looked me right in the eye. Looked me right in the eye and he gave me this look like, that's right, bitch. I got your <laughs> chips. Come and he just him. ran off into the forest. He ran off into the, the, the bushes. And I just hear like the little crumpling of the bag and I hear him chomping on the chips. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, so if you're intelligent been... enough to go and do that, you know what? You know what, sir? You deserve those chips. Yeah, he sure did. He even knew to stay close by so you could hear him eat them. Yeah. So he, he could just like punk you one more time. Yeah. You normally don't, <laughs> you know, you normally don't get wildlife just staring you in the eye while they're robbing you, while they're jacking your chips. You know, this reminds me of a possum story. So, and do you remember our old backyard when we lived in, um, in Costa Mesa that had all those fruit trees everywhere? Did you ever come over to that house? Was that you like did, the, that Halloween. Right. And the one that had all those like really cool decorations in the back? Yeah. Had that like Dio de los Muertos, Manigans and things like that back there? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we had that big apple tree and um, when it was full of apples, the branches would hang all the way down to the ground. It looked like a giant weeping willow, just like full of apples. And um, we had peaches and pomegranates and oranges. We had all kinds of stuff back there. And uh, so obviously the critters in the neighborhood like to come over to our house and eat fruit. And so did our dogs. And so did the rats and possums and raccoons. We had all kinds of wildlife back there. So we had an albino possum and we're sitting out in the back backyard and it's like, I don't know, midnight, one o'clock listening to music and, you know, got all the lights out, you know, it's all moody and nice back there. Yeah. And I look up and there's a possum staring me dead in the eye and he's maybe like two feet away from me and he's white. He was all white and hairless and had red eyes. So it was the first time I had ever seen an albino possum. And he was huge and totally not bothered at all. The dogs come out, they start barking, they're growling at him. He just did not care. He's just hanging out on his branch. So I'm thinking maybe he was blind. No, that's sort of like a protective mechanism that opossums have. Yeah. Is that when they see you, they just freeze. Yeah, they play dead. In their mind, like they play possum. (laughs) Yeah, that they they just play dead or they just go to chill there. Every time I run into a possum, it's the same story. Like they see me, they just they just wait there. And they just yeah. stare at you. It's kind of creepy, but you know what? I've seen a few videos on the dodo on you on YouTube. Possums are actually really smart, 
and they can be domesticated. There was yeah, this like, guy, I think it was like from Sweden that ended up like um, saving this like baby possum and uh, ended up raising it as a baby. And it's hard to accept in the beginning because, you know, when you live in the city, people affiliate them with like disease and stuff like that, right? Because they're usually found around trash cans and things like that. So you just mm-hmm. assume the worst with these animals. But yeah. uh, reading up about them and watching this video, they're actually really smart really cuddly and they have feelings just like me and you oh was that when you that was when you lived next to the convent right yeah (laughs) you you lived next to a nunnery Jim. yeah that was crazy and i remember going into your backyard and seeing the the building the the convent that you live next to was multiple floors Mm -hmm. and so i remember seeing it like did you did you ever have situations where you went into your backyard and you saw nuns looking at you from a from above no no we had plenty of trees you know kind of shielding their view but being really? that close to a convent, I'm surprised that our house didn't catch on fire, you know? Oh my gosh. Did you ever hear them doing their hymns? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually really? quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I've had crazy experiences in your backyard. I remember one time we had Halloween there. That was the Halloween where you dressed like a green alien and you Jen straight up looked like an alien from a different planet. <laughs> when I saw you for the first time, when I walked in, I saw your um, costume. I was, was I had to, I had to keep reminding myself that you were, you were Jen because you look like came from Star Trek or... Alien it, spaceship it was the bald cap that off. really did it, you know? What was it? The bald cap, because I had oh, no yeah. hair. You kept looking at me, and I was like, Jen, I knew this entire time that this is exactly what you looked like this entire time. <laughs> yeah, maybe. A lot of people don't realize this, but but if you go into Jen's hygiene, you look at her photo of her during Halloween, where she's wearing that sort of green uh, makeup and her head is bald. That's how she looks in real life. <laughs> yeah. That's how you look in real life. So everything that you're seeing right now on the camera, this is Jen with her whole get up, her whole human suit. So after this whole podcast ends, she's just going to unzip it. She's going to go about her day and do alien shit. That's right. I just hang it up in the podcast room. (laughs) Just hang it up in the podcast room. Yeah. It's like a party. It's part of your whole thing. But I've had experiences in your backyard. She used to have this mannequin in her backyard. I think it was a mannequin. Mm -hmm. And you dressed it up during Halloween to look like this crazy... Um, sort of like Dio de los Muertos character. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? The, was it a mannequin? It was, right? Yeah, it was a mannequin. And uh, we actually bought it at a party store, but it was super, super scary. <laughs> it was. Did you get it just for Halloween? Yeah. Oh, so you, you didn't just leave it back there? No, oh, no. Oh, yeah. No, it freaked me out. After okay. Halloween, I was like, we got to take that thing down. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when we were, all, we were all like in the backyard and we were all chilling for a while and then really late at night, everybody ended up going to bed. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't ready. I actually stood in the backyard by myself, Jen, in the complete darkness with that mannequin because me and that mannequin had a bone to pick with each other. Oh yeah. <laughs> I sat back <laughs> there. Maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't it wasn't a bone to pick. It was just there was something about the energy of that face amongst the shadows of the darkness in the back. And especially mm-hmm. during Halloween. Most people would have gone into that backyard and seen and felt sort of like the spookiness of the Halloween vibe of your backyard because you made it a little spooky. Yeah. Oh yeah. And as weird as this sounds, I acknowledge, just like you said, that that it was sort of a creepy, creepy mannequin, right? Oh, super creepy. It had yeah. that sort of value. Anybody would be reluctant to share space in the backyard with that. So Agreed. I felt that right away. When everybody left, I was like, okay, I felt that. I wanted to know what it would be like to just hang out in the backyard by myself in complete darkness with this thing staring at me. And I did. I used it as an opportunity to overcome fear. How about that? I yeah. did not know you did that. I did that. I was back there for a long time. I just stared at it for hours and I was just like, whoa, you know, wow. of course it was during a sort of medicine type of ceremonial journey. 
And so it was, it represented, it represented so many different faces. It was just, uh, it kept transforming into different things. It kept transforming into different faces. I've seen the faces of people that have brought me fear. I've seen the faces of things in my mind driven by my conditioning that have caused me fear. I have seen all the things that people typically don't want to see in that face. And I use that as an opportunity to overcome those fears in the backyard at your house. Wow. That's a pretty cool story. I never knew that. that? Yeah, that I think that's amazing. I think that after Halloween, um, I was walking in the backyard to clean everything up and it scared me. And I was like, oh, this thing's going in the trash. We're not saving this. So <laughs> I threw that <laughs> I threw that mannequin away the very oh, you next should've, day. You left, should have left it in the parking lot of the, the, the convent next door. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> it was in kind of a spooky white dress too. Oh, oh no. Yeah, you can't do that. Anyways, back to my <laughs> back to my camping story, Jen. I got not yeah. even okay. So I got I got chip jacked by a raccoon. That's one thing. That's and hilarious. then second, I got food jacked by blue jays. What? Yeah. So blue jays in in my mind have always represented good luck because you don't see them very often, right? Never. Yeah. Whenever you see blue jays, you're like, okay, it could be a spirit animal, or you just you think of it almost like a, a good omen. It's like singing eleven eleven when you see blue jays because yeah. you rarely see them. I just always feel good vibes. Until I went camping. I still feel good vibes, but the one thing that I didn't know about these blue jays is how really intelligent they are. They actually got into our food too. And they jacked chips, they jacked vegetables, they jacked snacks. And that's what happened with the blue jays. There was this blue jay that would come and and literally like fly in front of your face, pick through your stuff, and then bring food back to its little tribe that existed on the other side of the camp spot. And Mm -hmm. it had a bunch of little blue jay babies. Oh. So we were like, you know, we'll just leave some food out for you. But like this blue jay had no fear whatsoever. Like came up to me and it was like, what's up? You got food? And then we just gave it food and it just kept going back and forth throughout the entire time that we were there during the day feeding its little minions. Isn't that crazy how a food will domesticate pretty much anything? Or not necessarily domesticate, but you know, it's like a universal language, hunger, you know? Oh yeah. I was in Costa Rica some years ago and they had signs everywhere, don't feed the iguanas. So after a couple cocktails, I'm like, "Ah, I'm going to feed one of the iguanas. And uh, (laughs) it is incredible. I threw a little cucumber out for this one iguana and I am not kidding, about 20 iguanas popped out of every direction and came charging at the table. Oh yeah. And I, you know, I didn't know that they were all there, you know, only one made himself known, but all these other iguanas were hiding and they came out of the woodworks and wanted food. So then the bartender had to come over and like with the broom and sweep them all out of the, the restaurant. He's like, yeah. I told you don't feed the iguanas. <laughs> I was like, oh iguanas my God. Iguanas are so cool though. I used to see those a lot at, in Cancun. Yeah. And Cancun is very much the same thing. You go out there and they're just all there, just hanging out. Like you see one chilling on a rock, another one hanging from a tree. And you're just like, Does, you guys know that there's iguanas around here, right? And they're just like, yeah, they're just a part of the sort of ambience. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. not afraid of humans or anything. But yeah, this the is one in Costa Rica are aggressive. I mean, really? one of them jumped on the table and started eating off our plate. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. But they got the invitation. I gave them the invitation. You said you iguana some food. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. That's what I said. Okay, so there was one memory before we I conclude on this whole thing, Jen. Is uh, we okay. walked out to the beach during the day and just like walked walked along the beach. We did that whole thing. And I remember looking down and seeing these little black blotches on the sand. And I didn't know what they were. Oh, no. I didn't know what they were. I'd never seen anything like that before. But I was oh, walking was and I noticed that there were a lot of bees, a lot of bees on the beach. I noticed that there were a lot of dead bees on the beach. 
What I also noticed is that there were a lot of bees that were somehow trapped in this black goo on the shore. So I looked down, kind of analyzed it a little bit, and it was fucking oil. There was oil blotches on this beach. I mean, there wasn't a lot, but there was enough to notice. And I looked it up online. Apparently, it was the remnants of, uh, I can't remember what oil spill it was, but it happened there a while back. And so there's oil on this beach, and there are bees that kind of rustle through there and get caught in the oil. And you can't, oh. I can't tell you how many bees that I saw that were trapped in this oil that were still alive. And I just oh. felt so sad because I'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. Oh gosh. That makes me so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Never... I've, I've seen that before and um, actually been kind of like involved in it, you know, cause I'm from Texas and on the, off the Gulf coast and uh, there's lots of, lots of gnarly stuff in the water out there. Yeah. And I used to, uh, wakeboard and uh, I'd wakeboard in brackish water and brackish water is like half salt, half fresh water. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually got oil on my board and on the, on the boat uh, just from driving around cause it had floated in from one of the oil spills. But it's so sad whenever you see the, the wildlife and the animals with oil on them because you can't get it off. It was really sad. Yeah. I, I never actually like leaned down to really touch it, but it's like really thick. It's really thick. It's, yeah. it's really, really thick. And I, I saw so many just like bees kind of struggling with it. And there were some that sort of perished. And what we did, I just I just felt so bad as we started piling rocks on these little areas where we found bees as sort of like little memorial stones. Aww, so if you cool. go, if, if you were somebody that went to El Capitan State Beach after we went, you could walk, walk along the beach and we tried to make as many as we could. We just laid these stones on top of each other and you'll just see like this, this huge you know, a little plot of land that has all of these rocks, unless some kid comes and kicks them over, that represents sort of like the memorials of some of these bees that we saw. That's really sad. So let that be a lesson to you guys. Just, you know, be mindful of nature. Don't throw yeah. your shit into the ocean. Although it's, no. it's, it's really these, these oil companies that we really have to think about, the ones that actually do this kind of stuff. But I never in my lifetime thought I would ever come across a situation like that. Although I know it happens it's best to be mindful of this thing because it's one of those things that can definitely get worse if we're not paying attention and if we're not holding ourselves responsible. So on a lighter note though, Jen, Jen went on a little retreat recently. I did. I did. And actually before I went to see Joe Dispenza in Colorado and it was amazing. Mm. And on the topic of oil, this is crazy that you bring this up because uh, he showed us a little video of a guy in Japan who reverse makes oil and gas from recycled plastic. So he fills these little containers and melts it down. And because, you know, uh, plastic is made from oil. So, so he was like, well, it seems to make sense if you can make plastic from oil, then you should be able to convert it back. And he figured out a way to convert it back. Pretty cool. Really? So, yeah. So what is his utility with um, that? What is he uh, planning on doing with that? I don't know. I don't know. Like making another alternative form of oil? Yeah. He was taking um, recycled plastic and then making oil from it. So, you know, you can essentially, I guess, reuse that plastic. So it's almost like recycling cans, right? So Because yeah. we have a lot of plastic, mm-hmm. an overabundance of plastic. You can go into any dumpster in any like apartment complex and see just trash. Dumpsters full of plastic. So I imagine he can take all of that and make that into mm-hmm. oil for companies that need it so they can stop drilling into the ground. Yes. Wow. That's cool. Pretty cool. And was that yeah. in the context in which they were presenting that? Is that what they were looking to like build a more self-sustainable universe? Yeah. Yes. That's exactly the beginning of the story. He's talking about how, um, how his neighborhoods and and parks and all of those things had changed growing up over the years. And he didn't want to see those areas extinct forever for his children. So he 
tried to come up with a, a way to help recycle, which I thought was pretty cool. So I'll have to look, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll send you the video. I don't remember oh, cool. his name, but uh, that was one of the many like super cool things that happened at this Joe Dispenza. Where was retreat. it at? It was at uh, the Gaylord Hotel in Colorado. And you this went to is Colorado? crazy. It's, yeah, I did. And this is the end of May and it snowed. <laughs> it was 90 degrees on uh, on Thursday. And when I got there on Friday, it was like 40. Oh my God. Were you like Ralphie in a Christmas story all bundled up? I was, I was, we didn't really leave the hotel because these were long days. I mean, we were there, we started at eight 30 and didn't finish till like seven o'clock every night. So this event was held at the hotel that you were staying in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you didn't really need to leave. Was it close yeah. to the Rockies? Um, yeah, you could, no, not really. I mean, but you could see mountains and in, in every direction from the hotel. This was a pretty, pretty huge hotel. And this was the largest progressive class that he's ever done. So he has like three levels. There's like the intro level, the progressive, and then the advanced workshops. So this was like the middle level. The middle. The progressive. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you get to like the expert level? So uh, those levels are when you learn how to heal others. So in in this level, you learn how to heal yourself. And then in the, um, what did I, what did I call that before? It's called something. The the expert level. Yeah. It's not called expert level. The expert level boss. Because you said progressive level, and then you had these other levels that went on top of it. Yeah. So once you get to that third level, that's whenever you learn how to heal others. Oh wow. Okay. You were in like the the median level, the progressive. I was in the medium one. Yeah. Okay. So you know, I've done all of the all of the Joe Dispenza things. I've read all the books and did you know the online workshop, and then this was my first in person workshop. What 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 made you want to go and see him in person? That's a good question. I um. I'm so fascinated with him and I I wanted to see if there was some other secret that wasn't in the books, that wasn't in the online learnings. And truth be told, there wasn't, you know, it was all of the same content that is in the books that's in, you know, the, the intro learning. It's just him explaining it in a different way. Yeah. And, um, he has a lot of really good techniques for adult learning, so he mm-hmm. repeats things over and over and over, but says them in a different way, but it's the same content repeated. Yeah. So it is like burned into your brain, which is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I thought, I, I thought that that was really cool. And he, um, he kept saying, you know, um, neurons that, that fire together, wire together. Right. And, uh, have you heard, have you heard that or heard him say that? I have. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So he says that a lot. And then his other favorite phrase was your personality is connected to your personal reality. And I thought that that was pretty cool too. So those were like his two, his two favorite sayings. He probably said that 200 times in this workshop. I'm not kidding. And and I, I, I will also agree with that because he says that a lot in his talks too, that you can find online and YouTube. And, And here's the hack for all of you that have read his books or, um, and, and wonder, is there something that you're missing? You know, there's not read it again (laughs) because there's so many things. I actually reread, um, becoming supernatural a second time. And there's so many things that I caught the second time around that I didn't catch the first time. And I think it has to do with, um, your initial level of understanding, right? You read something the first time and then you under, you are retaining and understanding this new information. And then you read it a second time. You've already learned it. So yeah. then you don't need to learn that information. You're able to uh, take in all of these other bits and pieces that you may have missed. So yeah. it's 100% true. I mean, I have a library of books 
that I've read off and on throughout my life or the time that I've actually had them. We don't realize how much we evolve once we pick up a sec- the, the book the second time and mm-hmm. read it again. I have so yeah. many books like that. There's a book that I like called uh, Breath of the Absolute by Muji. You know, like there's a lot of books mm-hmm. by Judah Krishnamurti that I pick up. And there's one that I'm reading by uh, Sadhguru, Sadhguru right now. And it's like, I read it a second time, two years later, and I'm extracting new information out of it. And it isn't because of the information in the book has changed, but my level of understanding of these teachings and these practices have changed, perhaps because of my experience in life and becoming a little bit more open to these sort of like Eastern principles. It's crazy how that can happen. Yeah. And your spiritual evolution too, right? You know, uh, I'm, you and I are both very different people than we were three months ago, six months ago, 12 months ago. I mean, when we started the podcast two years ago, you know, just, it's, it's hard, it's hard to make a, make a distinction at times though, because we are who we are every single day. right? Right. And this is the reason why change for a lot of people isn't so obvious because we're a part of our lives every single day. It's like, we don't notice how the subtle changes in life happen because we're also a part of the journey every single day. But when you read something like a book, I think it really puts it in a perspective how much you actually have changed. And if I think back right now of where the world is at, and I think back to 2015, as much as you may not think so, life is so unbelievably different than it was back in 2015. Although the transition in between as each year progresses, we don't really see that as much, but you're going to go drifting off 10 years into the future and actually thinking back into your mind like, wow, I thought things would stay relatively the same, but it's crazy how different things are now. No, that's so true. That's so true. The interesting thing about what you're saying about these teachings is I totally agree because a lot of these Eastern, I'm going to call it Eastern spiritual teachings because a lot of these more or less have their grounds in Buddhism or Taoism or Hinduism. A lot of these messages are very simple, but they're simple to the extent where you could actually miss it if you're not really paying attention. And I think people like Joe Dispenza or um, just other teachers out there like Marianne Wilson, it's like the art of taking these and reinterpreting them in a way where, you know, modern people can utilize it in their lives, you know? Yeah. He talks a lot about um, neural networks and how um, anytime you relive a past event that you're, you're accessing that same neural uh, network from said trauma, you know, whatever it is. So say you had a bad relationship with your mother. Every time you think about your mother, your brain goes back to that neural pattern of that trauma. So you just kind of like keep reliving it and reliving it. And the way to move past trauma is actually to stop, to stop dwelling on it. And I thought that that was really interesting because he, he said it in such a nice way though. Like the way that he put it wasn't like, oh, you need to, you need to move on and get over it (laughs) and, and stop dwelling on the past. You know, he talked more about the, uh, the science and the brain chemistry of why you're not able to move on and then the, uh, the predictable future. Right. So it's kind of reminds me of the power of now, right? You, I'm sure you've read that book. I think everybody's read it, Um, but he, he focuses on like, okay, So this is your past and these are your patterns and your neural networks from your past. And you have all of these neural networks for everyone in your life, for your boss, your friend, um, your enemy, you know, and anytime you revisit that, you're going back down that path again and it's taking you into the past. So then you're not living in the present. You're always living in the past. Right. So um, as far as manifesting a new life, you're never going to manifest change when you're constantly living in the past. 
Yeah. So, um, so he talks about being present and, um, and not living in the predictable past or the predictable future. So I was like, predictable future, what does he mean by that? And so, and I kind of read this in his book and was a little confused about it. So he went into full explanation on that. So the example he gave is you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is go to the bathroom and then, uh, you pick up your phone and then you check your emails and then you're, uh, you check your Instagram and then you check your Twitter and then your brain starts firing in all of these different directions. Right. And, um, and then you decide like, well, I'm going to get some coffee. So then you go downstairs and you make your coffee and you make your breakfast and then, and then you get on your phone again and then you go to work. Right. And you do that, that same pattern every single day. And he's like, yeah. well, how do you expect miracles to happen? And how do you expect change when you're doing the exact same thing every single day? Yeah. So he gave an alarming statistic, and I'm going to see if you can guess what it is, what the number is. So what percentage of people reach for their phone the second that they wake up? 90%. Very close, 86%. Oh, uh, see? Yeah, because yeah. we've all been those people before. And yeah. I think there are reasons for that too, because um, we are such like a, a technologically integrated society. It's hard to see yourself as a part of that because life has evolved in such a way to where you have to be a part of it in order to right. stay informed or even stay connected with people. So it's one of those things that I think we have to find balance in because it's so easy to get caught up in that. And it's also the expectation now too. I, I know whenever, now I'm unemployed, but you know, last Friday when I had a job, that was the first thing that I looked at in the morning. My emails were going off, my Slack was going off, you know, and I had messages in both. And in addition to, you know, phone calls and people calling me, calling me through Slack and leaving me messages, it becomes ingrained in like the work culture too. And we talked a lot about that, about toxic work cultures, but yeah. it's, uh, it's tough whenever that's the expectation for employment in addition yeah. to, you right. know, uh, having any kind of connection with the outside world outside right. of your home. And that's why I feel like that's where, cause you can't, there's a necessity to it, right? Cause it gives you the ability to have your home enough money to support yourself. So there's a utility to having it there. Right. The solution isn't just to just give that all up and just sort of live in the mountains if that's what you want to do, but it's a necessary evil. As long as we're a part of this sort of like three-dimensional sort of Western world, we have to work. So my objective isn't to completely eradicate myself from the chaos of that, but to start looking at it in a different way, right? Finding balance with yeah. that. Waking up every single day, sure. not looking at it as if somehow I'm a slave to some sort of machine, but looking at all the beautiful things that come as a result to my dedication to this work. I think that's a really nice way to say it. Um, I, I really struggled with that, and I used to be that person. I was that 86%. And after this weekend, I've made a very conscious effort to not pick up my phone first thing in the morning. So when I wake up, I meditate because that's that uh, you're coming out of your sleep cycle and you're in kind of that dream state for, for the first 15 or so minutes. Yeah. And it's actually easy, easier to access the quantum whenever you're in, in that, um, in that brainwave state. So oh, yeah. I find meditation to be easier. So yeah, now I don't get on my phone at all. I wake up and immediately start to meditate. Right. And that's the reason why if you read like the books of Robert Monroe, they always say the best time to astral project is also waking up in the morning within that first 10 or 15 minutes while you're still kind of in that in-between stage. You can drop mm -hmm. into that world a lot faster. And I think I talked about it uh, before in some podcasts in the past, like the first 15 minutes of your day can dictate how your entire day goes. And that can come down to a choice as to whether or not you want to give in to the sort of conditioning of your body or to start mm -hmm. maybe operating more from presence. The one thing that I like about Joe Dispenza, he, he talks a lot about a lot of our traumas, a lot of our experiences are 
hidden inside of this sort of cellular memory of our bodies. Yeah. And a lot of what he talks about when it comes to this sort of like heart coherence is like bridging those experiences that are embedded, those behaviors that are embedded in our body and integrating them more with our heart and our mind, you know, because the one thing that yes. he talks about sometimes when he brings up trauma is that our fear inside of our body can't tell the difference between mm-hmm. an actual threat and the thought of a potential threat, say it's trauma. So if you, exactly if you deep reach far back into the archive of your brain and you think right now, and there are lots of people that do this, nine out of 10 people, they think right now they can pull a traumatic experience that happened to them 20 years ago and bring it right here in this moment by simply thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. And if it still has that emotional charge, if it still has that emotional charge, it can explode within your present moment and your body will react to that because your body doesn't know the difference between emotional fear and physical threats. You can convince your body that that trauma exists right here in this moment. That was one of those things that Joe Dispenza talks about, which is- Oh, he uh, talked about it for a full day. Yes, uh, about that very thing that that you're discussing. And uh, I I thought it was super interesting because he said, you know, it's not, it's not our genes that make us sick. It's our environment that makes us sick. So whenever we're creating this environment, you know, energy goes where your attention is. And, um, and the more traumatic the experience, the more you have an, an emotional connection to that, or really any information. Um, If you have an emotional connection to any information that you're receiving, it becomes a long-term memory. And, um, and it's easy, very easily accessed. Right. So, uh, when he was talking about the brain waves and, um, and the, uh, heart mind coherence, he was talking about being in high beta, which is where most of us are during the day, right? You know, you wake up in the morning, you check your phone, your emails are going off, Twitter's going off, Instagram, you're thinking about, you know, your, your, um, partner, maybe your kids are screaming, you know, there's a million things going on and your brain starts firing in all these different directions. And that puts you in an incoherent state in high beta. So that's your brain's firing off and it's inconsistent with your heart. And that's not, you're not able to learn anything or create from that environment because your body's almost in like a fight or flight state. Yeah. So it's almost so, like people people deal with two type of implications when it comes to that. Some people can mm-hmm. see the utility in engaging in these normal behaviors because that's what's comfortable. Mm-hmm. That's what provides them a sense of safety. So if we're in this battle between fear and love, the things that tend to draw up a lot of fear are the ones that we, the type of behaviors that we tend to engage in a lot more. Like what he's talking about, well, you can't learn anything more if you're just continuously doing the same thing all the time. Well, why are we doing the same thing all the time? Why are we thinking in exactly the same way all the time? Why do we keep recirculating the same emotions and feelings all the time? It's because that sort of primitive side inside of us, that flight or fight sort of response in the body, still somehow in some weird way thinks it's in the wild still. And it still thinks that it needs Mm -hmm. to protect itself from what it perceives to be an external threat, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not even, and and obviously that's irrelevant because we don't live in the wild anymore, but somehow our primitive sort of bodies can convince us that we shouldn't be afraid of something. And so in order to prevent ourselves from really fully, you know, falling victim to these fears or potentially being hurt by some wild animal, we engage in these behaviors that are safe, that never go far beyond what we're comfortable with doing. Yeah. You know, I thought it was really interesting. Like uh, all of the, all of the information, even though it's like very spiritual, right. And and we talk about chakras and meditation and all these things in a woo-woo type spiritual sense, but he actually opens the um, opens the conversation saying that everything he's discussed is based in science. 
and that he can prove and back everything, everything up that he's saying. And yeah. it actually shows you brain scans and actually shows you blood work of the changes of people's metabolites in their blood after meditation. And, um, it's super, it's super, super interesting, but he doesn't use words like when we do meditations and we're doing chakra, like clearing meditations, he calls them energy centers. And, um, yeah. the reason for that and the reason why he doesn't use like these trigger uh, you know, kind of religious type words is, um, because he says it causes division. And he was like, so, you know, I've, I've everything, all, all of the terms I'm going to use are science-based. So, yeah. um, instead of chakras, energy centers, which I like yeah. too. I'm like, ah, cool. I think this is great. I, I agree. I think linguistics are changing, changing the way. And we talked about a little bit about this with Lauren Bruno too, because there's, there's, mm -hmm. if we're talking about like firing, wiring different neurons and starting to think of a different sort of reality or future for ourselves, that comes down to the things that we say, right? Even comes yeah. down to the little subtle things that we say. I mean, obviously the way that we think isn't a pattern typically. Our conditioning ha has us thinking in these sort of like comfortable, noticeable patterns every single day mm -hmm. and words are worked into that. So when we yeah. change, and, and there are a lot of people, like including this guy named Rob Bell, and he was a part of the Mars Hill Church, and he's a, an emergent Christian. And he was one of the people back in the early 2000s that wanted to start changing the conversation uh, when it came to Christianity. So instead of you know falling into a lot of this sort of like relative ver verbiage that people fall into with Christianity, he started doing things like that, changing the words. Mm -hmm. And I've always been one to try and stay away from the woo-woo because those things have been around for a long time. If people have a negative affiliation with things that are too fluffy like that, those more sort of fantastical aspects of the New Age community, because right. in the same way that you have these radical sort of crazy Christians, you have a lot of that radical type of energy in the community as well. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> so I always say energy centers. I try and I, and I love when people do this. There are a lot of people that are doing that now, changing the way that we say certain words can completely rebuild the way that you think reality. And you know, it's, it's, uh, along the topic of linguistics, right? Um, he made some examples about, uh, people in your life and, uh, how they reaffirm your addiction to suffering. Like your friends, for example, you know, you're talking, uh, say you're talking to me about your girlfriend and I'm like, Oh, she did what? Oh my gosh. I can't believe she did that. And then it's just like, that that sort of gossiping from sharing between two people actually reaffirms your addiction to that suffering. And um, all that does is create a stronger neural pathway back to that negative event. And yeah. um, I never really thought about that. And I was like, oh my gosh. So since this seminar, I've been really, really aware of um, my conversations with people and my reactions to things. You know, uh, the other day, we were uh, in line uh, getting food. Uh, this was actually last night, actually. And uh, Jeremy and I were in line. And a guy stopped in front of the two lines, because there's two lines at McDonald's. I didn't want to say I was going to eat McDonald's, but I was. Um, and I know, I know. Uh, it was late and we had no food. Gen? I know, I know. So, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You're traveling. <laughs> you got to eat all the snacks when you're traveling. Oh, man. And I love their vanilla cones. Oh, so good. And you weren't as familiar with this space. Where else are you going to go? You know? Right. Yeah. So, uh, so there's two lines and a guy stopped in the middle of the two lines so he could pick which one was moving faster rather than just picking one and let's letting somebody else go in the other line. Oh yeah. And, um, and Jeremy was so annoyed by that. <laughs> and yeah. he was like, he was like, 
look at this guy. He's trying to get in the faster line, you know, and he was, he was super irritated. And, um, I went to go say, I can't believe he did that. But I was like, no, I am reaffirming, um, his addiction to suffering. I'm not going to say anything. So, um, yeah, yeah. So it's funny, like just a small, uh, in that small way. And then he made another comment about something else. And then I brought it to his attention and I was like, Ooh, you must be in a mood today. You know, you were upset about this guy and then, you know, upset driving, you know, with this other person. And he was like, Oh wow. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. You know, so it does make you a little bit more conscious and a little bit more present and um, aware yeah. yeah. And it makes you realize that like whenever you pass any sort of judgment, we all do it. When we pass any sort of judgment on somebody else, it's sort of reaffirming something that reaffirming something that we also need to work on within ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. there was this interesting thing that I think it was um, Osho that talked about one of his books, um, going back to kind of like how your thoughts create your reality. Mm-hmm. So like the people that we affiliate with in life, our friends are living embodiments of how we think inside of our mind, how we get a good idea of who we are in this world are through our affiliations with other people, right? You know yourself a certain way, but you're kind of biased in a way because you always think the way that you do all the time. And sometimes we can lose sight of the things that we do or maybe the unconscious behaviors that we have. But when we're around people, especially people that really love and care about us, they will project back to us the best qualities about us that we would love to hear mm-hmm. about. But if we're, we surround ourselves with crazy and toxic people, I mean, talk about creating a, uh, a nightmare for yourself. You know, we don't want to all know what it's like to have people in our lives that make us feel terrible. And if we really look deep inside as to why this is, it's because we allow it. And if we accept mm-hmm. the fact that there are toxic people in our lives that treat us terribly, then that means that we're okay with treating ourselves terribly. You know what I mean? Like uh, Osho has this yeah. quote that says, um, your thoughts will use your happiness to exist. Like your thoughts will, like if you're happy, your thoughts will use your happiness to exist. If you're sad, your thoughts will use your sadness to exist. If you're joyful or any feeling any sort of specific emotion, your thoughts will use that emotion in order to exist. And depending on what type of thoughts mm-hmm. you think, it could be a negative thought. Like if you're right. feeling happy, as good as it may seem to be able to think about what it means to be happy, that can also create a barrier to true freedom. Because the second you experience something that makes you feel good, you want to lock it inside of a box and start judging all of your experiences based off of the best experiences that you've ever had. And that's what thoughts do. Yeah. Like thoughts take screenshots of different things that you go through. It's an innocent sort of thing because I feel like ego is always trying to understand the reality in which it's in. And this is the reason why thoughts always intervene. But thoughts can keep us trapped in this sort of like not moving forward or not being creative because thoughts are always an imitation of something that's already happened. Like thoughts that we think about something are thoughts that are generated by past tense sort of experiences. So I think the goal, especially for me when it comes to spirituality, is how do you experience happiness how do you experience pain without allowing your mind to intervene and try and explain to you what these things mean? You know, like if you experience happiness, how to get your thoughts to stop grasping for more of it? Or if you're experiencing pain, how to stop your or prevent your thoughts from trying to convince you that you're a victim? Yeah. And I think uh, maybe that for me is kind of like the, 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 the practice, which is putting your thoughts in check. Yeah, absolutely. Your your thoughts, it, it's insane how quickly you manifest by your thoughts, right? And uh, back to Joe's favorite saying, you know, where your attention goes, that's where the energy is flowing to. So if you're feeling like a lack of money, then you have a lack of money. 
You know, it's just you, that's what you manifest. Everything, every one of your thoughts is what you, um, it, it just starts to reaffirm, you know, all of those beliefs. So people who say like, uh, and he brought this up too, and I thought this was a really good one. And this also made me think about Jeremy. Jeremy says, I can't meditate. It was like, I just can't sit still. I can't meditate. And I, and Joe Dispenza said, he said, all the guys say that I can't meditate. Yeah. He goes, but they can't meditate because they've already convinced themselves that they can't do it. Right. So instead of saying, I can't meditate, say, I can meditate, I can do this. And, um, and he talks about, there's no such thing as a bad meditation, that every meditation is a, a step closer to you getting over yourself and getting over your habits. Right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. And I thought that really resonated with me because I have someone in my life that I've been trying to, <laughs> trying to get to meditate for a long time. And, um, anytime I, Anytime I talk to people about meditation, that's the first thing that they always tell me. I can't meditate. Yeah. And I thought that and, that and, was really and, interesting. And I was like, crazy, I have something to say to that. Yeah. Like it's crazy. That sort of narrative, of course, yeah, it probably happens with guys a lot. It happens with everybody. I think it happens yeah. to most people when when they start putting, when they put one foot in the door of this whole spiritual thing, right? Mm -hmm. The first question is, well, how do I do it? Right. And so they go and yeah. they ask people how to do it. And then more, more often than not, <laughs> someone will give them a sort of practice mm -hmm. and then they'll sit down in meditation and realize that they can't do it. But my whole point is everybody has an idea of what meditation means. And more often than not, mm -hmm. those ideas are the reason why we become discouraged and even trying to do it. Because everybody has a different take on it, at least from my, my perspective, everybody has a, a different take on it. But the the interesting, like Jiddu Krishnamurti would say that you are never not in meditation. What kind of pulls you out of meditation are the thoughts that maybe Jeremy has that he can't do it. Right. And one thing that I would say to Jeremy is who told you that you weren't meditating, right? Like yeah. who told you that you you couldn't do this? Like it, it's not one of those things that I, I think of as like a, a light switch that you turn on. You were always on, right? Yeah. But our thoughts can cloud our perspective of that sort of like natural quality of being of meditation that we're always in. Like we're always in that state and we may not always realize it, but like, just like Lauren Bruno talked about the other day, you know, like when you get behind a wheel of a car and you go to a destination, there are some destinations that you know of that you don't really need to think about getting there. There are mm -hmm. all these different types of things that bring us into the float state. We don't really need to think about it, but those are states of meditation. I think yeah, meditation absolutely. is about being more consciously aware of those type of experiences and not getting too lost in uh, the practice of it, the strategy of it, the structure of it, the how-tos mm -hmm. of it, you know, the sort of A to Z that people sort of think about when it comes to meditation. I think that those things largely prohibit people from accessing that place. What basically what I'm trying to say is I think a lot of people make it a lot harder than it needs to be when yeah, it's actually no, more totally simple agree. than simple. Yeah, it's the easiest thing to do. And yet it requires no money. The only thing it requires is time. That's it. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, it's really interesting that that you brought up how people are looking for answers on how to meditate, right? And that's that's how Joe Dispenza has made his living is showing people his technique on how to meditate and how to manifest. And like you were saying earlier, it's all about the heart mind coherence. So in his meditations, he has you go to a place where you're no one, you're no time, you're nothing, you're nothingness. Right. Yeah. So you go to that place in meditation. And then from that point, you combine um, the, your future self, who you want to be. So say, um, say you're ill, right? And you're, say you have cancer and you want to be someone who doesn't have cancer. Then you imagine your future self without cancer. 
And then you combine that with an elevated emotion. So that is the heart-mind connection, right? So you've combined your um, your future self with that elevated mo- emotion of gratitude or happiness or whatever it is that you're looking for. And that is how you're able to manifest those things quickly. So that's the trick. I mean, it's the heart-mind connection. And that's pretty much his entire his entire teaching. So this is just one way to do it, right? Like there's yeah. a million ways to meditate and uh, whether you want to do silent meditations or, you know, um, uh, guided meditations or there's different techniques. Um, but this is his technique. And um, if you're looking to heal yourself, heal trauma, heal the past, heal um, physical ailments, that is the technique on how to do it. So, and I me, thought I was me, missing something. And all these books, right, that I've read, I'm like, oh my God, I've read books this thick, you know, four inches yeah. thick of material and gone to all these seminars. And it's just the same thing over and over. That's it. You just yeah. have to grasp that concept. It's the same thing over and over again. And then at some point you realize that the grasping for the concept is the reason why you can't get it in a lot of ways. Right. When somebody exactly. says, yeah. when somebody says like, I, I, I can't meditate, it's like, to me, it's like saying like, you can't be yourself. Like you don't know how to be yourself. Like you need somebody to teach you how to be yourself. Like you were naturally in the meditative state all the time. Right. But we have all of these ideas of what it needs to look like first before we sit down. Like we need to be in the lotus pose. We need to have like two crystals in our hands. It's got to be sage burning. There's got to be like the right sort of like neural, <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, binaural beats happening. And that's fine. There are some people that just need a practice. And I think that's the mm-hmm. reason why Joe Dispenza does it. There's not just one way to pull this whole thing off. There's just different ways to arrive at the same place. I've always took the more Advaita Vedanta route, which is the direct route. But that's a hard place to get to because you have to really practice some separation between your ego and your spirit, right? Because if you're Mm -hmm. able to operate from your spirit, you're able to see all of these sort of functionings of the ego working all the time. You're able to, uh, you would call it in Buddhism, like the mindful observer. When somebody says, and it just makes me think of the conversation that we had with Lauren Bruno uh, the other day, where we're talking about, you know, when people say, I feel this, when people say, I feel this type of emotion. And a lot of people that will come up to you and say, I feel sad. I don't know what to do. A lot of people that come up to you and say, like, I'm so angry, I don't know what to do. Well, you're already at an advantage in a way because there's some aspect of you that can identify the fact that you're feeling this way, right? Yeah. Because when I used to you do that sound baths yeah. all the time, there were people that used to come up to me and they'd be like, I just feel so sad, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, who is it that can identify the fact that you're, you're sad? When you're saying, like, I feel sad, there's two aspects of you that are working in that statement, which is there's mm-hmm. sadness and then there's this force inside of you, we can look at that as awareness, that is able to acknowledge the fact that this is what you're going through. And that is a perfect example of the separation between awareness and the ego. Your awareness is able to identify that you're sad, but the issue is that you don't realize that your your awareness is the one identifying it. Like you think you are the one that is sad and you don't know what to do, but there's a really profound feeling that comes through you when you're able to say that I feel sad, like you're already halfway there. You just have yeah. to, you have to realize that you're looking from the vantage point of awareness. And if you're looking from the vantage point of awareness and you realize that that awareness can never be affected by these sort of ephemeral thoughts that come and go, you know? Yeah, that's, that's so true. What do you think <clears throat> from, from your experience with uh, going to this retreat? And this is the one thing that I'm always kind of skeptical of, and I don't know what all of his sort of goals were with the retreat, but was it was was the retreat about a practice in obtaining a sort of spiritual freedom from the chaos of the mind, or was it a practice that you think that some people can try and use as a way to just manifest more money? Um, well, he talks a lot about manifesting abundance, and that is 
really the first thing that he talks about. And uh, he talks a little bit about like money being energy and everything in the universe is just energy, right? And um, I mean, yes, I'm I'm sure people are there specifically for that. And he did use examples of, of people that came specifically to manifest money and how they were able to do that. Um, yeah. But he also gave examples of people who were there to manifest um, health. You know, yeah. um, he actually had a, a woman come on stage who is a doctor at Kaiser and uh in california which is really interesting and she had a super super rare cancer and um out of this rare cancer she just and she just came out of medical school and was diagnosed with this cancer at like 32 years old and tried all the chemos and and everything and was super sick and the tumors were just getting larger and the correlation here that i thought was really interesting is she just came out of medical school right mm -hmm. high stress environment and so her brain was in high beta that entire time and in that fight or flight you know, response for 10 years and mm. it made her body, um, uh, down, it made her cells down regulate into disease. So, uh, she figured out like, Hey, you know, and she had already been meditating. She just wasn't doing his specific techniques mm. and went to one of his seminars, started using his technique and went into remission. So, oh, wow. and this was, yeah. So pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, they gave her like six months to live and she lived five years and wow. she's still alive. Yeah. And she just had twin babies through a surrogate and, you know, all of this crazy stuff. Like she, she was, had a pretty, a pretty active and high stress life. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so there's certainly different examples of, of different ways to manifest. Now, this is, this is the one thing that I wanted to get your opinion on. And he does a pineal gland meditation. Yeah. And uh, this makes me a little bit nervous, right? because this is, a, it's a Kundalini meditation. That's all it is. So oh, yeah. it's bringing, you know, your cerebral spinal fluid from the base of your spine to your brain to give you that, um, that, you know, kind of psychedelic type awakening. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't know if, if everybody is ready for that, <laughs> uh, especially mm -hmm. people that are like new to meditation. Uh, yeah. I think it's, you can easily get into that place. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you're looking at from the Hindu perspective, like if you look at the works of like Ramesh Balsakar or, or mm -hmm. uh, Nizar Gardada or even like Muji. Mm -hmm. Another way that they translate what you're saying is that they liken the Kundalini as like a sleeping serpent that exists at your root chakra, right? Which is basically mm -hmm. down by your ass. And that energy slowly throughout your life, if you are somebody that isn't looking to just deliberately sort of like get that serpent to start crawling up your spine through your chakras, everybody is on the journey of awakening that serpent, but they, it happens over a course of your entire life. Some people may yeah. not reach through all the chakras in order to get to the crown, but it slowly sort of reaches. And as it goes from your spine up towards your crown, it goes through each one of the chakras and it charges mm -hmm. it, right? So right. the second we start working more on these certain energy centers, like he's talking about, like if you work more on your your root, if you're working on your solar plexus, if you're working at your heart, and you are operating at the the most fundamental level of these these energy centers, that can be looked at as the Kundalini yoga, the Kundalini like uh, serpent climbing up your spine. That's one of those things right. that happens naturally over time. But you have a lot of people online that are have these practices to force it up your spine. Yes, right, and that's to exactly that's exactly what this is. It's a forced. It is intentionally you're meditating um, from your root chakra to your crown and forcing the cerebral spinal fluid from the bottom of your spine to your brain to give yeah. you that. Yeah, that's that that's experience. tantric. That can be looked at like chi or prana or 
like Reiki energy, that, that, that can yeah. be looked at even as tantric energy. That can be looked at as sexual energy because, and I think Joe Dispenza talks a lot about this too, like creative energy is also sexual energy, right? Mm-hmm. Creativity and sexual energy come from the same place. They don't come from repetition. Yeah. They don't come from patterns. They come from the straight unknown, right? That is creative energy. And so whenever you're trying to force that energy up your spine, you can do it. And maybe five out of 10 people can do those meditations or go into like a deep samadhi meditation and draw up that energy up their spine. They teach this a lot in Kundalini Yoga too. And you will survive. But there are people that I've even met in my life or even experiences or stories that I've read through reading these books on Hinduism. To preface this though, most Eastern sages will advise you not to do that because they take the whole traditional stance of, okay, well, you need to kind of hang out with the yogi for 12 years in order to be able to reach that point. Now, a lot of them don't think that, I mean, a lot of them are modernizing their teachings. A lot of them don't think you need 12 years. My whole point is, if you're somebody that doesn't really know what you're doing, and you try and do that, yes, you can hurt yourself. You can liken it to when somebody who isn't ready to take plant medicine, you can liken it to somebody that has never had any experience with psychedelics that suddenly just blows their fucking mind with something like that. How that can, if they are not prepared, induce a type of psychosis in a human being. It can also induce a type of dark night of the soul that somebody isn't prepared to undergo, right? Because that dark night of the soul is a sort of metaphorical story of all of a sudden you're able to identify the truth of how reality works. And Mm -hmm. once you identify the truth, you may realize that everything in your life is an illusion. And that is an enlightened perspective to have, but there are a lot of people that are really, really grossly attached to their lives. If they experience mm-hmm. something like a Kundalini awakening and they're not ready for that type of awakening, it can break them. You know, like it can yeah, break them. Exactly. They, they could they could exactly. lose their and family. That's... They can lose their job. They can go off running off into the mountains. They can sell all their shit. But in the sort of grand scheme of how the universe works, it's no consequence to do that. It's just another way of learning. But as it pertains to the sort of Western society, me and, me and you or other people out there would look at it like that guy just fucking lost his mind. That guy went crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the whole psychosis aspect too, you know, you don't want to end up in a mental hospital after a a Kundalini meditation. So, um, and this is combined with breath work, right? So, um, it's, it's so, and you can find it on YouTube. I mean, his pineal gland meditation, it's pretty intense. I mean, by the time I'm in a meditative state, I'm super, super lightheaded. I, I have only done this meditation maybe five or 10 times, uh, for that reason. It's just like a little too intense for me. I don't know that oh, yeah. I'm, I don't know that I'm ready. <laughs> I'm like, um, yeah. I'm going to take a step back from that. Like the next but step I thought into, it was pretty interesting. The, the, the next step that I think the deeper that you go, that's when you have astral projection type of experiences. Yeah. You know, I think when you go into those deep meditative states, there's something that happens inside of your body. Maybe when those, like you'll notice that when you start meditating, like when you sit down and you start meditating for a long period of time, you'll start to feel like this really noticeable rise in the energy of your body, right? Mm-hmm. And the best way you can explain that is, okay, that's your energy centers. Those are your chakras starting to spinning faster and faster mm-hmm. and faster. And that sort of prana energy, that serpent energy at the base of your spine is what charges those chakras in a lot of ways. And the second you start climbing up through your chakras, you reach your heart, go through your throat, you get to your crown. That's when the mystical state happens, and that mystical state manifests as astral projection, manifests as an out-of-body experience, 
it can manifest as like this this instantaneous sort of samadhi experience where you feel like you're tr- you're straight up tripping without the use of plant medicine. You can maybe look at that as like your pineal gland opens up and all of that sort of dimethyltryptamine that you have just sort of starts permeating through your entire body. And a lot of people go through these like instantaneous feelings and spontaneous feelings of bliss. And yeah. as cool as that sounds, and I'm just coming from experience, as cool as it sounds to experience that, it can freak you out because you've never experienced what it feels like before. You know, yeah. like it literally yeah. feels like you are going to leave your body. Like you may just leave this space. And as cool as that is, if you're not prepared for that, you might just freak out. Yeah, totally. And you know, something that I learned, and this is kind of the last piece on the um, pineal gland meditation is uh, that the, it's, the pineal gland is just rows of crystals that are stacked together. So um, whenever they start to compress is um, during meditation, it creates this electromagnetic field and, um, and from there starts to charge. So it's almost like you have a signal um, mm-hmm. in your pineal gland. So there's an actual electrical charge during meditation that they were able to actively measure, which I yeah. thought was super, super cool. Yeah. And the- I never knew that. I didn't know that there was, that uh, that was actually measurable. Yeah. So there are some Did you Buddhist monks, some Zen, actually some, some Zen Buddhist monks that I've read literature about. They have actually, ex- they, they were the original ones to experience with psilocybin mushrooms back in the day. And they mm-hmm. were actually aware of the pineal gland. And they were aware of that sort of what we now call the dimethyltryptamine of your brain, but they called it yeah. the death hormone. Oh, they called it yeah. the death well, that hormone. That makes sense. Right. So they, they bridged when you die. <laughs> the pineal gland, the, the, the utility of the pineal gland is what bridges your consciousness in this body to the other world and so they say that when somebody dies their spirit leaves through the their their pineal gland is what allows them to exit this life and go into the next one and with meditation Mm -hmm. with plant medicine or what they were talking about with plant medicine it's the closest that you can come to dying without actually dying and i think a lot of what these meditations teach is how to get to the brink of that experience without losing yourself without losing your body because if you're able to see what's on the other side um, through that, then you'll be able to see kind of beyond. There's like a deeper understanding there. But as it pertains to kind of what we're talking, I just wanted to touch on this really, really quick, is that we're talking about chakras. The reason why you can't just, I mean, you could, but the reason why you shouldn't just force your kundalini energy from the base of your spine is because, one, you have to be ready. What does that mean? Well, each one of your chakras represents an archetypal journey that a person goes through. Your root represents your sense of survival, your sense of grounding in this reality. If you can master that, you've mastered your root. If you go up to your sacral, which is right above that, that is your sexual energy. That's your creativity. If you've engaged in some sort of practice in your life that's creative and you've mastered that, you've mastered your sacral, right? And then you climb up towards your solar plexus. Your solar plexus is your will. If you've gotten to a place in your life where you're able to take all of these sort of creative forces that you have and will it into existence through manifestation, Say you have a a hobby that you like, if you're good at painting, that is all solar plexus. That is like your divine will. Once you've done that, you've mastered that. But once you climb up to your heart chakra, that's when you start to understand love, right? Mm -hmm. Once you start understanding love through all of these practices of creativity and grounding, then you start to expand. This is this chakra's journey from the root to your thousand-petaled lotus is just a journey in understanding and awareness, really understanding love. So once you have gone through your chakras, like you you go up towards your, your throat chakra, which is communicating your truth, understanding what love is, speaking your truth, then you'll be able to get to your third eye. That's where all that stuff starts to happen. If you get up through there naturally, 
then that kundalini, that kundalini energy, that awakening will happen and you will have been ready because you understand yourself completely. You'll understand that life is magical. You'll understand that life is mystical. You'll understand the whole premise behind love. And so when that energy shoots down your spine, it's not going to freak you out because you realize at that point that you're eternal, you know, that you can never die and that you're always supported and you're always loved because at that point you realize that you're God, you know? Mm -hmm. So that is that, that natural journey needs to take place. If you're someone that just wants to force that energy from your spine up to your, your third eye, you're not, and you don't understand what any of those chakras mean because you don't have that experience in your life, that's where you can hurt yourself. You're just going to freak out because all you know is control. Yeah. yeah. So I have a yeah. question, and I tried to look it up, um, but I didn't find the answer. Maybe you know the answer. Do you know why the Egyptians used to remove the pineal gland after someone died? They used to pull their brain out like through their nose. Do you know why they did that? Why did it that? Yeah. I, to be honest, I didn't know that they did that. Um, oh, but you But the didn't? only thing that I can think of is like in Hindu traditions, they will do stuff like that because you have, um, it, it sounds kind of weird and it kind of sounds esoteric, but it, I imagine that maybe it has something to do with um, not allowing somebody else's energy to penetrate your body or to influence you in some way. And mm. I don't okay. know if that makes sense, but what, what yeah. Sadhguru talks about is this civil this this um there's this sect called the Aghori that exists in India. And the Aghori, if you look it up, they're crazy. These are people <laughs> that utilize like dead bodies and corpses in their practice. Like they will go oh. out to the Varanasi, they will go out to the Ganges, and they will wait at the funeral pyres for a body to disintegrate or to die. And when people leave, they'll take the body and they'll go and start meditating on top of it. They'll do all these crazy rituals. They'll take the skull and they'll turn it into a cup. And the reason why they do all of these really controversial things is they're trying to completely eradicate any sort of notion of fear with death by constantly exposing themselves to death all the time. Ah, and it's a crazy um, thing, uh, really, if you think about it. I, there's so many other things that they do, but that is a sect that actually exists in India. So a lot of the, the families that have dead bodies the reason why they burn them is for that reason. So nobody else takes them. Uh, the reason why they take certain things off of the body is because a lot of these ogori will take something like a ring or something like their shoes and use them for certain rituals. And so I imagine maybe in Egypt, they had something relative to the ogori that existed back then, people that used these things as occult type of practices. Mm. Interesting. I don't know. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to research it. But yeah. Um, yeah, I remember learning in like first or second grade about Egyptians. And that was the one thing that was burned in my mind that they had these like little hooks that look like crochet, crochet hooks and they would um, stick them up the nose of a Pharaoh and remove their brain and their pineal gland. So oh. I was just curious if, if you knew. I wonder. Well, yeah. That's so an that was question. Maybe we can talk about that in yeah. the next podcast. Yeah, we'll have to follow up on that one. Ooh, we should do a, a podcast on Egyptians. Oh my gosh, Jen. That, I don't know if we'd be able to cover that in like an hour and a half <laughs> to two hours. You have National Geographic fucking shows that are like seven seven episode series on the Egyptians, and they're still talking I know, about it. I know. <laughs> That's yeah. so true. That's so true. But yeah, so that was. Um, that was my uh, experience, my Joe Dispenza weekend. And uh, the major takeaway is just whenever you're meditating, you know, the purposes or the purpose in his teachings are um, to imagine uh, yourself in a different body. Yeah. And uh, by doing so and by combining that with an elevated emotion, uh, you'll you'll be able to manifest whatever it is that you want much faster. Yeah. So um, highly recommend all of his teachings and his books. I thought it was super interesting. 
And if you're somebody that's, that's religious and, um, and you feel uncomfortable about that, don't worry because everything is very, um, scientifically worded and, um, lots of science in the books too, lots of brain scans and imaging and things like that to back up all the things that he's saying, which is pretty cool. So. Yeah. Like your thoughts create yeah. your reality. That's true. You know, your thoughts and your so behavior. True. And that's just one of those like really interesting things. He talks about a lot about too, like you can't be creative if you're always in imitation all the time. A lot yeah. of these behaviors that we engage in unconsciously are imitating behaviors that came from the past, right? Something that we've, mm-hmm. we've learned over time. And we do this as a mm-hmm. way of protecting ourselves. But if you want to access the creative space, we got to start thinking outside of these sort of like constant repetitive thoughts and repetitive habits that we have. Cause I think he talked about like whenever we even focus on certain thoughts for a long period of time, they become our behaviors. They become our yeah. personalities. That's, ex- that's exactly, that, that's his second favorite phrase <laughs> is that, that your, your personality becomes your personal reality. Yeah. And the only way to change your personal reality and to change your personality is to change the way you think. To change the way that you think. And that can be, that can be as subtle as, and I think you talked about this before, one of our podcasts in the past. It's like, if you're somebody that takes the same route to work every single day, take a different street, like wake up in the morning, instead of just going to the restroom, go and like make your tea first. Or open the blinds yeah. in your house if you're somebody that works remotely, you know? Or like instead of working on your couch, if you have a patio, go and sit on your patio. Like those things don't seem very significant until you actually do them. Like learning to- and, Yeah. And it's overcoming yourself and you're overcoming your pattern. And um, that alone, overcoming your pattern creates new neural networks and a whole new bundle of neurons um, that opens you up to creativity and learning. Yeah. because we, Just we those, have- those little tiny changes in your day. Yeah, we have this like aversion to change in a lot of ways. And I get it. It makes us feel really, really comfortable in our relationships, in our life. For example, the other day, I wanted to start doing things differently because I work from home. I spend a lot of time at home. And I said, you know what? I looked at my partner and I was like, I'd like to go for a walk. I'd like to start going for long walks after work on my street, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I know what it's like to go for a walk because this is a thing. This was the trick, right? I second I started thinking of going for a walk, I thought to myself, well, I've went for a walk before. What's entertaining about a walk? You know what I mean? Like I've seen this neighborhood before. Like what could I possibly get from this walk that I haven't gotten before? That is the trap, right? That's the trap. Because the yep. second I went for that walk, the second I went out into the street and I went on that walk with my partner, I came back and I was so grateful that I did that walk. I felt so amazing mm-hmm. to be amongst nature, right? And you may not be able to explain how it is that it changes you, but the fact that it's different, the fact that it is different from the normal routine that you typically engage in changed a lot for me just by doing it. And that was just sort of a simple thing. I went for that walk and afterwards I was like, man, I feel good. I feel amazing. It, even just going for a something. walk. Yeah, go for a walk. Change your habits. Change your no. day. See what happens. Change your habits. That was a good one, Jen. Yeah. That was a yeah, good one. Really you, good. you had your like Christ in the desert moment. You went onto the world. No, you had your Gautama Siddhartha moment. You ventured outside your kingdom walls to Colorado. Right. And <laughs> yeah. you brought something back to the tribe. I did. I did. Yeah. It, w- it was cool. It was a great experience. I don't know that I'll do a five day, but, um, you know, for what I did receive out of this, I think I got, I got my money's worth. So I'm yeah. happy. Yeah. And that's always yeah. good. That's what we need more of, and especially some amazing right now. People too. Super cool people there. P.S. Yeah. Every person that I met was awesome. This, this was a perfect example of everything that you're talking about. Like you did something different. You went out there, you learned new things and you came back a, a completely different person. You even look younger, Jen. Oh, I do. Thank you. Yeah, you look younger. You look okay. more rested. You look like 20 years younger. Oh, you it's because like, I quit my job. 
it looks like <laughs> home. Stressful last yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, looks like the next day. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Well, yeah, well, that's good. That's good. Good. Thank you for sharing that. We'll have more of these course experiences the days ahead. We're always learning new things. So thank you guys for tuning in to Vinyl Woody's podcast. If you're listening to this, you're probably already on the audio platform. If you go into the description, you can find the, the YouTube video if you guys want to see me and Jen staring at each other. You can like and subscribe and uh, follow us on there. If you have any questions, you can find us on Instagram as well. Send us a message. Let us know how we're doing. And also, if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Always love hearing from you. But until until then, yeah, namaste, guys. Namaste, friends.